In Acts 17, Paul comes into Athens, the great city of Greece. He makes his way in, being forced out of uh, the city of Berea previously in chapter 17, and he's escorted there by some of the men of Berea. He makes his way there, and as he's there, he enters the city and observes the culture. He becomes a student of the culture. He becomes a student of uh, the people of that city and sees the things that they interact with, the things that they worship, the things that they are giving their lives to. And we're told in verse 16 that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Paul witnessed a city that is full of idols. All glory and honor belongs to God, and yet Paul is witnessing a city, an area, a group that is giving glory and honor to other things. And this does not sit right with Paul, nor should it with you or I. Because whenever there is glory to be given, we know that all glory and honor belongs to God. And so this, like Paul, should provoke in us a righteous anger because what is being given to these idols is rightly due to God. And so Paul, in response, he sees what's happening. He begins to reason in the synagogue. And then he goes to the marketplace and he encounters these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers we saw uh, last week. And he had these conversations with them. And uh, they hear what he has to say and they... uh, are interested to a certain degree, and they take him to this area uh, called the Areopagus, or in your Bibles it might be translated as Mars Hill. This is an area that is uh, just outside of the Parthenon there in Athens, uh, right by the Acropolis, and these huge temples that are on a hill. It's kind of situated between the Acropolis uh, and the Temple of Zeus that is kind of at the base of that hill. Um, And Paul is there to encounter the highest philosophers in Athens to bring his teachings to this group, to declare the truth of the gospel. And Paul goes about it in a strategic way because he has studied the culture. He has studied the city. He knows how to interact with the people of this city. And we said last week, as we look at this, this is the same for you and I. If, as an outsider, you might consider that, you know, maybe Berkeley is a city that is uh, overall overwhelmingly atheistic, but the truth about Berkeley is it's actually quite spiritual. There is a a big buy-in to, uh, you know, different religions and different paths and different ways to enlightenment. And everyone is seeking something. Everyone is putting their heart into something. Everyone is serving and worshiping an idol to some degree. Whether that would be uh, something that would be deemed an official religion, whether that would be uh, a certain path towards peace or enlightenment, whether that would be the approval of family or friends. Often, many of us are serving uh, the intellectual pursuit the pursuit of knowledge, philosophizing, or even seeking to be known, to have glory, so that way we are able to have the career that we want because we've earned a certain amount of glory, 
prestige. And oftentimes, those things are things that come and stand in the place of God. And as we consider our city, we live in a quite spiritual city. The people that you know and you're, you interact with are maybe atheistic sometimes in, in confession, but in practice, they're serving a God. They're serving something. Now, for you and I, we ought to know how to interact with these people. The people that are around us because, one, they are people to be loved. God loves them. God died for their sins. He gave his life so that they might know him. So the first thing is we have to understand that the people who are around us are people that God desperately loves and wants Uh, He wants to know them, and he wants them to enjoy him. And secondly, he has put us in a place to interact with them so that we might bring them into fellowship with Christ. First, through the way that we live our lives, that we might live Christ-like, that we might live out the character of God, the fruits of the Spirit might be seen in our lives, but then secondly, that we might verbally communicate how God has rescued and saved us, and how God might rescue and save them. The Lord has given us these charges in the Great Commission to make disciples, to help people meet Jesus, and to help them come into a relationship with them. Now, of course, these things do not depend on you because it is God who rescues and saves, but he has nevertheless sent us out as his missionaries to be faithful to that call. And as we are those missionaries, Good missionaries study the culture, study the the area that they're in. And so we want to uh, take some of what Paul looks at this morning and glean uh, some of his techniques, some of his strategy, and apply those things to our current context. And so as we look at Paul's response uh, here to these men, the first thing that he has that happens with him is he's dragged to this group by Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. But as he makes his way, we see in verse 22, here's what he does. Listen to what he does here. Verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Paul, he's engaged initially by these two schools of philosophy, but he doesn't just zero in on these two schools. He doesn't say, okay, Stoics and Epicureans, let me talk to you. But instead, he widens his view and he makes the most of his opportunity. He goes broader to the culture of the city that these different schools are all situated in. He addresses the men of Athens, the people of the city, all who are a part of this group. And he he speaks to uh, the prominence of their reputation of religiosity. We saw earlier, uh, well, we looked at last week, we said that it was said of Athens that that it was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a man. There were so many people, or so, so many idols, that you, it was easier to, to look around, be walking down the street, and find something uh, that you might worship than it was just to find a regular person. They were everywhere. They, they were proliferating the city in mass. And this is what Paul 
is appealing to here. He says, you know, there's this, you guys have this re- reputation that you're so religious. I see that you make this great display of piety and religiosity. He goes on, verse 23, and he gives an example. But he roots his argument in this example. <clears throat> For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul coming in, he says, I've, I've seen how many idols you have. I see that you are a very religious culture. Everywhere I look, I see the objects of your worship. But then he gets at him this way. He says, I found an altar with this specific inscription to the unknown God. There's something that you guys don't know about, this unknown God. And he says, what you worship as unknown, I have the knowledge about this unknown God. He says, you don't know what this unknown God is, but let me tell you, because I know. He anchors his argument in this. Now, the reason that there's this this altar to the unknown God is because the Athenians, in their practice of worship, they didn't want to insult one of the gods by not worshiping. So they're like, well, we'll just have kind of a generic unknown God. uh, So that way, if one of the gods is angry, it could be like, well, you're one of the unknown gods that we are worshiping. So, you know, kind of just covering our bases, making sure everything's good, no one can be upset at us. So they, they have this, this strategy, but Paul takes it and he uses this to his advantage. Because if you recall, as we looked at last, uh, last time in chapter 17, the people of Athens are obsessed with knowing. They're absolutely obsessed with knowing. They want, they're, they're chasing particularly new knowledge. They're obsessed with, with knowledge in general, knowing these different schools of philosophy. And Paul says, you guys don't know about this, but I have knowledge. And of course, that's going to perk up their ears. And they're like, well, why don't you tell us about this? Because we, we're obsessed. We need to know. We need to know. If you have something that we don't have, we need it. And so Paul anchors his, his attack in this idea of knowing that they don't know, but Paul says, I know. And there is someone who can be made known to you, this God that you supposedly are worshiping. Because for Paul, his God, the God of Israel, the one and true God, is all about making himself known. The God of Israel is not a God who hides himself, but a God who has repeatedly over Israel's history made himself known again and again and again to his people. So much so that it, it comes to its ultimate climax in Christ coming down in the form of a man and making himself known. God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. No longer was God separated from man like at Mount Sinai where he was on the mountain and the people were at the base of the mountain separated and a fence around that said, come no further. But God has become a man in the person of Jesus Christ 
100% man, 100% God, living among us a perfect life in our place, paying for our sins so that we might know him and enjoy him. This is the true heart of God, that he would be known, not that he would be unknown. And so he wants to make himself known to the people of Athens. Paul says, I serve a God who is all about making himself known, and you can know him. And so Paul starts to roll out a couple truths for this group of people. First, the truth about God. Second, the truth about mankind. And third, the truth about judgment. First, the truth about God. Second, the truth about mankind. And third, the truth about judgment. Verse 24, Paul begins to roll out his attack and bring them this knowledge, the truth about the living God, the one true God. He begins to develop his argument here in verse 24. <clears throat> and he uses, he uses these three statements because they have some fundamental misunderstandings about God and he is working to bring them true knowledge. So first thing we find in verse 24, Paul says this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So Paul's first point is that God does not live in temples made by man. They have this understanding. The Athenians have this, this thought that, you know, they create these uh, places for God to dwell, that they are acting as these creators, and then they force their created gods into this spot. But Paul says, the true God is a universal creator. He is Lord over all, over heaven and earth, and he can't be confined to temples made by man. How foolish to think that the God who has created all things needs you to build him a little house to live in. How dumb. Paul brings this to their, uh, to, before them. He is the maker. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The creator cannot be confined by his creation. And Paul says it is foolish to think that creation might facilitate this place for God to dwell. Now, Paul doesn't expand here because Luke is kind of tracking the argument in a specific way. But the reality, the reality of the beauty of Christ is that God comes to dwell within his people. He dwells among us and lives within us. He's given us his spirit as a guarantee when we trust in Christ for salvation. Not only can God be known, but he wants to be with us, both individually and corporately as a church, dwelling among his people. How radical is that? 
to consider the opposite in the Athenian perspective that, that you would have to come and bring these sacrifices and worship to appease the gods, but yet you never really knew how things were going to go down and there might be a God who's mad at you. But, when, but for us, when you trust in Christ for salvation, he's happy to come and dwell within his people. How beautiful to see that God love us so faithfully so lovingly, unlike any other God. Paul goes on in verse 25, and he gives us the second thing, corrects the second misunderstanding. First, God does not live in temples made by man. Second, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need anything. The second thing that Paul points out is he's not served by human hands. First, he doesn't live in temples. Second, he's not served by human hands. You're not have to give him anything because he doesn't need anything. He's the creator. You don't need to sustain him. He sustains us. We, he doesn't depend on us. We depend on him. You don't need to give things to him to make sure that he's okay. He is the one who takes care of his people. He's the creator, the giver of all things, the one who sustains all of mankind. God provides for us. We don't provide for him. He's provided his son so that we might know him. Christ coming in the form of a man living among us so that we might have that ultimate relationship with him. So we find the character of God in 24 and 25. And now we come to the truth about mankind. Verse 26. Paul goes on and he says this. And he made one man from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. (coughs) So God, who is the creator, the sustainer of life, he is the one who has taken many nations, we're told, from one man, every nation from one man. He's created their dwelling places, their, ba- their boundaries, their nations, the allotted periods of time that they will be there. Here's what Paul does. He recognizes the image of God as stamped upon all of mankind. Now, this was a big, uh, a big jump because for the Greeks, they viewed every other culture as barbarians. There was the, uh, the Greeks and the barbarians. They considered themselves racially superior to every other group. And so Paul says, you're not the only ones. This God, who is the creator, has stamped his image upon all of mankind, and he has created the, 
the nations from one man. He has given them their land and their boundaries and the times that they should be there. Athenians, you are not the end all. God has done a great work in creating these other groups, these other nations. This brings to, it levels the playing field in terms of racial superiority with the Greeks. And, you know, of course, that is true for then, true for today. The unity of the human race, racially, ethnically, whatever you want to call it, is found and anchored in our being made in the image of God, that we are created by him and we're created for a common purpose, to know him and to enjoy him. We are all seeking after the same thing. We are all hoping to find our peace in our Savior, and we are all longing for God because we were built to be satisfied in him. For Paul, for this time, the Athenians, different gods were connected with the different cultures. And so for the Athenians, they perhaps also had this view that there were different races and different lands and they had different gods and some of those gods were more powerful. But for Paul, what he's wanting to communicate is that if all people belong to God, if they're all made in his image with all the same level of value, of God's image upon them, they're all, being, uh, they're all working to be united in Christ together. So for Paul, what he's essentially bringing to, the, to the, the Greek mind here, who live in this polytheistic culture, is that the God of Israel is God over all, and if he is the God over all and the one who has created all mankind, then there can only be one God. His attack on the Greek view of racial superiority is actually also an attack on polytheism. He's saying there's one God who's created all things, and there's not these many gods for different lands, so therefore there's only one God, and this one God is the creator of heaven and earth. Now he goes on, verse 27. <clears throat> he says, God has created them, determined there are a lot of periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So Paul's point is that we are created to know and to enjoy God, not just to exist, and to find our satisfaction in food and drink and leisure, we are created for a purpose. And we see throughout Israel's history that many of the Gentiles were drawn into uh, Israel. They became converts because they heard of God's dealing with the foreign lands. They saw God's faithfulness to Israel. God's fame went forth in all the earth and people 
came into a relationship with him as a result. Now, Paul goes on and he anchors further his argument in some of the Greek uh, culture, the Greek texts that are familiar to them. In verse 28, he says this, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now, what Paul does here is he cites a Greek poet. There's a little bit of argument in this first half of who that poet might be. Uh, but he's using the, these poets' words that would have been accepted in uh, this school. He uses them to, to, uh, he uses them to convey the biblical truth that God and not creation uh, is the realm in which, in which, which, which meaning, our existence, our sustenance. So he roots it in this, in this phrase, in him we live and move and have our being. That's so true. For the Christian, this is the truth, and for the world, this is the truth they are looking to find. That in God we live and move and find our being. But when we see the world chasing after idols, it's them looking to live and move and find their being in something other than the beauty of Jesus. And friends, we want them to see clearly that the only way that you can find true life, that you can find true joy, that you can overcome suffering and pain is when you, find, when you, when you live and move and find your being in Jesus. It's the only way. It's the only way. And so Paul, he takes that and he, he uses that truth to, con to convey his truth, this biblical truth, that God is the one who is the source. He's taking these truths that they already believe and he builds on them to show that they come to fulfillment in Christ. Now, this is a tool, a tactic that you can use. As believers on campus, you take the things that are true about God, the truths that are already believed, and you show how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment. Jesus is the one who we're really seeking after. Because there are truths that are universally believed. You can use those to springboard. We can talk more about some of that in community group, and, and that's why we're here for each other, to disciple one another and equip one another, to help each other work through things, to learn and grow together. We want to take advantage of the truth that is out there and use it for God's glory. Because anything that is absolutely true, if it's something that is true, it's, it's God's truth. All truth is God's truth. It belongs to him. And so we want to use those things as springboards. The second thing that Paul does is he goes on and he quotes Aratus of Cilicia. This is this philosopher, uh, poet from the third century. And he said of Zeus, uh, we are indeed his offspring. The second part is a quote also. <coughs> For this poet, he would have been speaking in a pantheistic sense. He would have been thinking, of course, you know, we are children of, of the earth and we're all, everything's God and we are all, we're also a part of this. But Paul, he, uh, he co-ops that truth and he takes it out and he views it in the light of the image of God. 
that we are God's offspring, as he is our creator, he has made us, we bear his image. So Paul's bringing it back to that image of God theology, anchoring it in monotheism, stealing away what was meant originally for pantheism. Paul takes it and says, no, if there, if there is this one God who is the creator of heaven and earth, we are his offspring, he's created us, then there can only be one God. What Paul's doing is he's affirming that we are all family, that we all have a problem, that we are all longing for God. And then he begins to make his turn in verse 29 and brings his argument home. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So here's the third truth that Paul brings. uh, He corrects this misunderstanding for the Athenians. His third truth is this. God cannot be represented by an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Right? It makes sense. The creation cannot say, oh, here's what the creator is like. Let me design him for you. His character and ability cannot be limited to what we can imagine. God's character can't be confined in that way. In fact, we're even told in, uh, in Exodus 20, the second commandment, that this is something that is against God's law. Exodus 4, or um, 20, verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So God cannot be represented by creation because God is greater than all of creation. You can't form God into any piece of art or or image because our imaginations can't even conceive of how wonderful he is. Anything that you might do or create or try to represent him by just doesn't work. Perhaps... In talking of the Trinity, you may have heard uh, the analogy that, you know, God is kind of like steam, the three in one. He's like, he's like liquid, you know, he's like water, and then he's like steam, and then he's like a solid, like ice. It's like, yeah, but, but great, like God's just not only those three things. God is not like, God's not like any of that because God is greater than creation. It's like a helpful thing to maybe wrap your mind around it for like a moment. But if you said, oh, oh yeah, God's like, God's like water, it can be in these three forms. How dumb does that sound? It just doesn't make any sense. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of like a way to talk about it. God's so much greater, and, and we cannot begin to put him into uh, this description that would be so simplistic. Now, Paul takes the truth about God, the truth about mankind, And he begins to elaborate on what happens when God and mankind begin to meet each other. In verse 30, he gets to the truth about judgment. The truth about judgment. (coughs) He goes on, he says, The times of ignorance, not knowing, being unknown, God overlooked... But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So the ignorance that was happening previously, right? They're worshiping this unknown God. Oh, we don't know who it is. And Paul says, let me give you the knowledge. You don't know who that is? Let me bring it to you. I know. 
the ignorance that they were previously operating in with, this, with these uh, idols, these altars have, has just been highlighted. He says, you guys don't know what you've been doing. But now he says, you've been informed. You've been shown the light. And now God commands all people everywhere to repent. They all belong to a time of ignorance, and he has overlooked their ignorance, and now he is calling them to repentance. Now, we want to note that God did not approve of this ignorance. It wasn't like, oh, it's okay if you don't really know what's happening. There's not an approval of this ignorance. And he didn't hide himself or punish them because they didn't know, but he overlooked it. He allowed it to happen, much in the same way that uh, he works this out in Romans chapter 3. Uh, if, if, if you recall Paul's argument there, he says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Down in verse 25, he says that God put forth Christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Uh, and he said that the reason that God did this was to show his righteousness because in divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in Romans chapter 3, Paul's making this argument that in the past, there are things that have happened with uh, some of the people in Israel who had sinned and they didn't get the punishment that should have been handed out to them. And the reason that that didn't happen was because God was, he allowed it uh, to pass for that moment because he would have been sending Christ to pay for these sins. But now that Christ has come, it's time to repent. And for the Athenians, this repentance meant that they would have to turn from serving these false idols to coming into a relationship with God as their creator. Paul has shown them that their beliefs, the way that they have operated as a religious culture, has kept them from a true knowledge of God. And now he is calling them to repent because they will be subject to judgment. We read in Psalm chapter 9 about the justice of God, the judgment that will be brought upon all people. Psalm chapter 9, verse 7, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord's judgment is coming, but it is a perfect judgment. There is no partiality. There is no failure to make right judgment. It is perfect and true. In Psalm 98, the psalmist continues and he says, God will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. I love that. I love that description. God's judgment will be righteous. It will be right, correct, 
pure, true. But then we have this idea of equity. Equity is different than equality. Equity talks about you're going to be dealt with on the basis of what you had to work with. God's judgment is right and true, and he can only make that call because we don't know. Only God can make that call. He knows what you've been dealt. He knows what you've had to work with. But let me tell you, God will not shortchange anyone. They will be given opportunities. They will be, have God revealed to them again and again and again because God is in pursuit of his people at all times. No one will be able to say, well, I didn't know you were after me, God. I didn't know you were trying to speak to me. I didn't know that you wanted me. No one will be able to say that. God pursued us even when we hated him. He pursued us and gave his own life for us. He's not going to stop coming after us. No one will have be given a short amount. Everyone will have given plenty of opportunities, an abundance of opportunities, because God is willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All should come to repentance. And so Paul, he tells the Athenians, verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So this was like a mind-blowing ideal idea. Because he says, you guys haven't been able to find God, and I'm revealing him to you. I am bringing the unknown God into the light. I am showing you the beauty of Jesus. And now he says, there, God is appointing a man to judge you. And that forces you to encounter the living Christ. Because who else, what kind of man could be capable of judging the world with justice? What kind of individual could, could fulfill this role? Now, what Paul does, instead of answering the question and saying, it is Jesus Christ, he, he lets it hang. So that way they ask that question. Who is worthy to do that? It creates more unknown because they're after the knowledge. They're going to keep asking, who is going to be able to do that? And they're going to keep pursuing. And he says, the one who is worthy, God has shown us of this worthiness, of his worth. He's given us assurance by raising him from the dead. Now, this just blew everything up because this challenged the Greek view about the immortality of the soul, the belief that the dead do not rise. Paul brings this resurrection of the dead into Uh, their mind and he makes this claim later in Romans 1 we find that Paul writes Jesus was declared to be the son of God 
in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. It's the resurrection that declares Christ to be the Son of God. It's the final approval, the stamp of God's acceptance. And so for Paul, what he says is, if the resurrection took place, it validates all things. It shows that encountering God and being judged by this man who he appoints will indeed happen. And Jesus is the one who will judge. Now we come to verse 32, and Paul or Luke reports for us that there were two different reactions to Paul's words. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. There were two different reactions. There were some who mocked him just like they did in the market because he spoke of the resurrection of the dead. They weren't having it. But then there was another group. They expressed this desire to hear more. They were interested. They heard the resurrection. They heard, who is this man who could judge? Who is this man who has been resurrected? Now, we're told down in 33, uh, 34, that some believed. So it seems like those who heard him got an opportunity to ask some questions and get filled in and come to faith. They were able to see the truth about God, the truth about mankind, the truth about judgment, and find their identity in Christ. They were able to turn from idols to the beauty of Christ. So Paul goes out, verse 33, from their midst, But some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, Theriopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. So there's this group of people who come to faith. First we find uh, Dionysius, uh, whose name there, Areopagite, someone who was a part of this council, someone who was familiar with uh, perhaps in the leadership of, of this group. And then we also find this woman named Damaris. So it was uncommon for women to be called out unless they were especially prominent. And so this woman uh, may have been someone who was very important. Uh, she has obvi- an obvious presence here at this meeting. Uh, so she has some great st- uh, status or she's a part of the council in a specific way. Maybe she represents some of the philosophical schools of either the, the Stoics or the Epicureans. Uh, either way, there is uh, some role that she played. And as a result, there were, um, uh, there were a group who also came to faith. And this was the beginning of uh, this church that happened here in Athens. <clears throat> it's encouraging to me to see that even in the midst of this, Paul's reaction is split. The reaction to Paul's speech is like some people were like, dude, you're crazy and we hate you. 
And some people are like, eh, that's interesting. Let's have a little bit more of a talk. Because I think that's the reality of what we're dealing with here in our city and in our culture. It's easy for us to look at the heroes of the faith and to, you know, to look at, you know, things like the day of Pentecost where Peter gets up and he, like, speaks for a little bit and, like, all of a sudden, like, 4,000 people are saved and, like, 10,000 and all of a sudden we're like, oh my gosh, like, I can never do that. But it's more realistic to, to see, like, Paul get up and, like, make these brilliant arguments that are rooted in their culture and, like, you know, someone who has written most of the New Testament and then, like, half of the people hate him and half the people are like, eh, I don't know, but, like, maybe keep talking to us. And then later it's like, okay, well, like, two prominent people believed and, like, some people came with him. It's like, because that's more, like, realistic of what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. But nonetheless, Paul was faithful. He did his thing, he got in the trenches, he got his hands dirty, he did the work, he made much of Jesus, and people came to faith. And friends, that's, that's what the Lord's just asking us to do. You don't have to be a rock star proclaiming the gospel. You don't have to have these crazy gifts. You just have to do the simple work of communicating what Christ has done in your life. Because again and again we've said, no one can argue with a transformed life. No one can say, oh, it's not true that you were this person and now you're this person. You can come up with any other arguments and have these different perspectives, but your story of resurrection cannot be changed. You can't argue with the dead being raised to life. When you trust in Christ for salvation, the Lord does a new work in you, and that work is powerful. It's true, and it's your story. And the Lord wants to use your story to meet people where they're at. The story that you have is the most important story that you're going to tell. And no one can take that story from you. You are going to identify with other people more than some of us will. You will have more inroads into people's lives than a lot of us will. And so, do not despise your testimony or your story. Do not look upon it and say, oh, you know, it's not very great or it's not very strong. Whenever Jesus changes something, that's always strong. There's never anything wrong with that, and it's amazing. And use it, because God has entrusted you with that story. He's given you that story so that you might tell it and that people might see that God rescues and saves. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you have done a good work in our hearts. You've changed us. You've transformed us. You've made us your own. Lord, we ask that you would continue that work, sharpen us, make us more like your son. We need you, Jesus. We know that we cannot do it without you. We know we cannot be... Um, we cannot live on our own, or we're weak, but in our weakness, you are made strong. And so, Lord, we surrender to you as our creator and as our savior. And Lord, we pray that you would equip us, send us out filled with the Holy Spirit, with boldness and empower to communicate the truth of your gospel. We pray, Lord, that there would be many who would come to faith through our lives, through our work, 
as we are just simply living faithfully to you. Amplify our voices, Lord, in in our communities and in our groups of friends. Help us, Lord, to reflect your character. We love you. Amen.